It is even so in a commonwealth and in the council of princes. If ill opinions cannot be quite rooted out, and you cannot cure some received vice according to your wishes, you must not, therefore, abandon the commonwealth. For the same reasons as you should not forsake the ship in a storm, because you cannot command the winds. I'm Bob. I'm Zach. I'm John. We are reading old genres and pulp fiction for the very first time. Each month, we pick a new theme. This month, we're reading utopian novels, and we're starting with Thomas More's Utopia. We try to keep all of our references to books and authors that we've previously read together for this podcast so that we can draw connections between different genres. Can we create a web of connections between books and different genres and time periods? I don't know, but we're going to try. And we encourage you to read along with us. The easiest way to do that is to get the audiobook from our sponsor, Audible. Audible makes it easy to explore new books or to take chances on authors you've always meant to get around to, but you've never found the time. You can have a free trial and a bonus book by using our link, which is audibletrial.com forward slash genre podcast. John, what book are you listening to on Audible right now? I just finished listening to German psychologist Eric Fromm's book named The Art of Love. He says that love is an art and therefore, like any art, it can be understood, practiced and mastered. The fundamental problem of human life, he says, is to overcome separateness and interpersonal union is the only satisfying solution to this problem. The true resolution of the individual problem, he says, is in turn the solution of the social problem, that is, love. Fromm was a favorite of Paul McCartney, who pointed out, paraphrasing Fromm, that love truly is all you need. I think that's a good setting of the stage for our utopian theme month. And this book that we're about to start is actually the source of the word utopia. It's a word that means nowhere. The word invokes images of a perfect society in a faraway land. And this is a story that's written in 1516, but even today, there's still a lot of elements that seem pretty good. So my first question is this. Do you guys feel like readers can pick up this book and enjoy it? Or do you feel like we need any historical context to really understand what's going on here? Let's see. Did I enjoy Utopia? Did I wake up feeling more utopian? (laughs) I don't know. But I did like knowing that Thomas More was Christian. I also liked knowing that he was eventually executed. And what I liked knowing most was that when he was studying law as a young man, to aim at subduing the flesh, he wore a hair shirt, I would too, took a log for a pillow, and whipped himself on Fridays. Already do that. But I don't have much more context than that. And I think it's hard to enjoy these utopia books because utopia as a genre doesn't have much narrative. There's not much character oomph to it. There are fun moments in this book, and we get to zoom in on some really interesting moments but I don't think we'll get to see these arcs played out from these interesting moments until we get to those those later dystopian books. Bob, it <laughs> seems like you see a little Thomas more in yourself. More and more every day. I gotta get me a hair shirt. <laughs> so I wonder if all utopian books lack narrative or if it's just this one. I don't see why it would be essential to the genre that there's no narrative. I do think some useful context for this is, like you said, Thomas More was a lawyer and a politician and... In his political career, he went into royal service for King Henry VIII. 
this book was composed while he was in royal service on diplomatic duties in Belgium, negotiating a treaty in 1915. I think this is important to the understanding of the text. To give one example, in the text, the mouthpiece character Raphael Heitherday praises the utopians for not making treaties with other nations, since they are never kept. Well, now you've got me thinking about how this book really does not have a narrative at all. And I think that the book itself really only halfway presents itself as a book of fiction. It, but it's also presenting itself as a book of political philosophy. It seems to be trying to do both things at once. And I think that's really why it lacks this plot that you both are talking about. But another aspect of that might be how early it was written. It came out a hundred years before Don Quixote. You know, Don Quixote is said to be the very first book that we would recognize as, as a modern novel today. At this time, I think that elements like character and plot tension and, and arcs, they, they, they exist in a very limited form. You know what this book reminds me of? Sorry, I'm just going to jump in. This book reminds me of, since we read all those mysteries last month, the section of the mystery that's the detective denouement, where the detective says, okay, I know we've looked at all of the evidence. I know we've interviewed a lot of suspects, but here's how I see it. And then we get a whole chapter of this evidence means this. This book, the Utopia book, feels like that denouement without the buildup, without the being in the dark, without the mystery. There's nothing to bump up against except unless we don't like certain decisions in this utopia. Narratively, though, it feels like just a long detective denouement. Well, in this book, it's not like they have a dead body laying around and they need to figure out who the killer is. What they do have is, is a broken society and they need to figure out what the best society is. So in a sense, I think you're right. It is kind of a denouement. And I think there is something polemical about the genre of utopia. So I've just uh, finished reading Atlas Shrugged, finally. Atlas Shrugged is kind of like a, a utopia nestled within a dystopia. And the book is most famous for this very long speech at the end as, as a radio broadcast by the, the hero of the story, in some senses, John Galt, who is just for hours just laying out his philosophy, laying out his view of life, why society is bad how it should be improved. I just wonder if this is a feature of the genre as a whole. You know, the idea of a utopia nestled in a dystopia really sounds like a cult. <laughs> you know, the cult gets a little bit further away from the city, a little bit further away from the sins of whatever they're mm. trying to escape, and then they make their utopia. But they're still somehow connected, at least close enough to, you know, sneak over to the buffets and poison the salads. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's something strange about utopia in that it's to even write a utopia, you you must probably start in a society that's not yet perfect and far from ideal. So there's something kind of not so much rebellious, but it takes a certain anti-authority attitude to suggest a utopia because you wouldn't waste your time writing a utopia if you already lived in it. That's a that's an interesting idea. This book we have the author who is from England and meeting someone who went to go visit Utopia, and they have a conversation about Utopia briefly compared with England, but then it mostly goes on to Utopia. If we eventually read that other book, We, that starts with a character who's been living in a utopia that has existed for generations. And it's just mm -hmm. him kind of talking about his life. And you don't really, he doesn't recognize that he's in a dystopia until the very end of the book. But he is basically telling you about how perfect this world is for the whole book. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. So maybe that's... Uh... A development of the genre. Yeah, like mysteries, you got to change it up. Otherwise, people aren't going to buy your book. I think it's interesting that in the Wii book, which I haven't read, but 
you talk about it being presented from one single character's point of view. And John, when you talked about Atlas Shrugged, I know I know Rand's book, it seems like every single character has their own perspective on what their own utopia is, their own political ideas that they, they're all stand-ins for. So it seems like fundamentally in this book, Moore's Utopia, in that we book and in Anne Rand, these ideas of utopia are always coming from certain characters and certain perspectives. So do we get any kind of characterization within this largely plotless book? Because it seems like we have multiple people talking here, and we get to know them through how they react to these different ideas in utopia. And not only that, but we get to know them through the ways that they talk about the present time, the 1500s. So we get some description of the character Raphael Heithlerday when he is first spotted by the character Moore talking to Moore's friend, Peter Giles. He is described as a man well stricken in age with a black sunburned face, a long beard, and a cloak cast homely about his shoulders, whom, by his favor and apparel, forthwith I judge to be a mariner. But he is not in fact a mariner, Giles reveals, but traveling philosopher, comparable to both Odysseus and Plato. And this well-caped man, Hithloday, his name, means something like he who talks nonsense. And I think that's interesting that this nonsense talker is talking about nowhere, utopia. Moore's intention with that word is not the Greek for good or beautiful place, but for no place. And he makes this clear in an addendum in, I think, a second edition to the book, writing, Wherefore, not Utopia, the good, but rather rightly my name, Utopia, no place, a place of felicity. Yeah, and for the listeners, this is a cool pun because, you know, Utopia is spelt with just the U, Utopia, no place, whereas a beautiful place, Utopia, is an EU, Utopia. But my favorite pun here is that in Utopia, there is a river named Enida, which means waterless, as if the point hadn't already quite been made that this place didn't really exist. If you look around, you'll find an equal number of people seem to think that Thomas More is making fun of the idea of a utopia. And the other half seem to think that he's earnest and very serious. But when I see these little hidden meanings in the names, which you really only catch onto if you know Greek or like you have footnotes to the book... It really makes me feel like Moore is writing satire. I only caught on to it because of the magic of Wikipedia. There there are other things, too, that you could interpret it as. Sure, it might be satire. It might be playful to, to make fun of the whole idea of utopia. Or it could be self-defense. I mean, this is the time when people were executed for outlandish ideas. I think Giordano Bruno is executed around the same time. Moore is eventually executed. So putting himself as a character in these dialogues, as a character who can say, oh, I don't know about that. That sounds a little bit like communism. Obviously, he doesn't say that exactly, but <laughs> a character that can say that, and that idea is a little too far. He can make himself safe by using his own name. And whenever he needs to do that, he, he can say, Thomas Moore believes this is too radical. <laughs> so it could be self-defense too. i just a potential case for that in this book. Okay, so what was Thomas More actually executed for? I, I hope it wasn't, you know, for the sake of this book. No, it was nothing to do with this book. 
Uh, he was executed for refusing to swear an oath to acknowledge the king as the head of the church, being that Moore was a devout, devout Catholic. And actually, Moore was exercising a similar virtue of restraint as he is or appears to be, as Bob suggested in this book. He refused to acknowledge the king's right to be the head of the church, but he also refused to deny it. He chose to remain silent. But just in the court of the time, despite technically not denying the king's right to be head of the church, they deemed silence to be sufficient enough to say that he didn't acknowledge it. So they executed him. They could neither confirm nor deny. Yes, he could neither confirm nor deny it. But the key detail here is that, you know, Moore is a Catholic, as we already mentioned. And there's a kind of a funny story of when he's getting executed and he's he's walking up the steps with the master lieutenant on the way to be hanged. And he says to the lieutenant, see me safe up. And for my coming down, let me shift for myself. He's even thinking right before the axe. Where are our characters speaking from? What setting are they in? Uh, so they're far away from Utopia here in Moore's back garden, which is a very casual scene, almost kind of like a picnic. And then at the end of the first book, after the dialogue, the characters ask Hythloday to give them a, a long description of this island of Utopia and their ways of life and their customs. And they do this after having eaten dinner. So it seems like a much more formal occasion than the beginning of the book. Yeah, this this aspect of the book is really interesting to me. People don't pick up this book to hear about Thomas More's garden. They, they don't pick up the book to hear about these random characters who are talking either. You could drop this entire frame story without anyone ever missing it, because the primary point of this book is to describe this utopian land. I mean, this is the reception of the book, to the point of where when we talk about a utopia... What you just said, Zach, reminds me of when we read Horace Walpole's book, The Castle of Otranto, and the idea of it being a found text, him trying to play off this book, which he wrote, as a found text, and trying to make events seem real. And that could be what Moore is doing here. It might be some sort of literary flourish where, if you describe the garden, all of this actually happened. There's kind of a, an interest. It, it piques people's interest when they think it's nonfiction. Yeah, and I think Thomas More plays into this by having the characters of this book be actual real people, except for this traveler, Raphael. I think this frame really does serve an important function, though, because they're in the garden, and this is before they have dinner. Or I guess I guess in England they call it dinner, in, in the States it would be called lunch. But before this meal, they're sitting around, and they're complaining about the political issues of their time. What are the what are the problems of living in late medieval England? I'm sure that, you know, if you just imagine for a second, you could think of several. Bloodletting. Leeches. <laughs> Bring out your dead. <laughs> so they're talking about this and then they're like, well, I think it's time for lunch. So they eat. It's a natural break in the conversation. And then it allows them to come back once they finish. And then they can talk about... This other world, this utopia, far away, you have to sail to get there. It's in an entirely different hemisphere. And once they're done talking about this, then it's also time again for them to eat. So it seems like these meals are really bookending their conversation in a way that allows us to really understand and structure what the author is trying to do here, to create a contrast here. I liked how close you said hair shirts and it's time to eat. Hair shirts. Meh, I'm hungry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, yeah, I think that's a good observation, Zach, about the, the being kind of like a frame narrative. And also the fact that they are talking about political ills in England at the time, and that's what ultimately leads to the conversation about utopia. And in particular, the political issue that Heithler Day is talking about is thievery, the crime of thievery and its punishment. So Heithler Day is recalling a conversation he had with Cardinal Morton, who at the time, I'm not sure if this is true, but in the book at least, is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, this is one of the two or three most powerful men in the whole country. So firstly, who the hell is this guy has the day that he's talking to the Archbishop of Canterbury? That's also some interesting characterization. But the topic of the conversation is very interesting also because the Cardinal praises the fact that in England at this time, thieves got the death penalty, apparently. And Hyther Day is arguing against him, saying, well, this is, this is much too extreme a punishment. Firstly, it's not clearly a sufficient deterrent because you still have thievery in England and people are only th- stealing to survive. So the option is either die of hunger or die of potentially being caught for stealing things. Secondly, it's irrational because if you punish thieves with death, which is the same punishment you give to murderers, then thieves are incentivized to murder the people they rob so that they will remove any potential witnesses. So it it's, seems like this political issue of thievery is rooted, as far as the book tells it, in the nature of the feudalist society at the time, where you have a few landowners and powerful people at the top who hoard all of the wealth and all of the money and leave none to the to the workers so that when maybe they are injured or old and at this time there's certainly nothing like a welfare state so they they just have to steal they have to resort to doing that i think these are very uh, sharp political opinions to be expressing at this time in, in this late medieval period which is why when you told me that thomas more was executed i immediately assumed it was because of this book but i think i think he gets around the opinions expressed here being so sharp by doing this really interesting literary characterization so what you get is that the people in this book are named after real people the first character's name is thomas more just like the author of this book the other guy is named after another real person peter giles who happens to be the printer and editor and real-life friend of, of Thomas More. And this actually reminds me of a book that came out very, very recently, Karolova Kanausgard's My Struggle, in which the main character is a character named Karolova Kanausgard, and the best friend is is whatever his name was, and you know he was also the editor of the book. And when that book came out 10 years ago, it was hailed as being this innovative piece of autofiction. But here we have the same literary conceit happening all the way back in the 1500s. But back to Utopia, this other character, Raphael Heifleday, he's totally fictional. He's a larger-than-life character, and I think it's important that he's fictional because he's the character who had lived in Utopia for five years and is so in love with their political system. And he's the one who's expressing the most radical political opinions. So maybe this is a good place to, to discuss it. There are many interesting things that Utopia does as a society. What stood out for you guys? I like the elements that are really memorable, especially with certain objects and how the people in Utopia deal with those objects and how 
it contrasts with us or with 16th century England. And there's a great one with gold, but I want to mention the clothing first. Everyone in Utopia, they, they wear the exact same kind of garment. They all wear work clothes of an undyed fabric. And then if they go to a leisure event or a formal event, they put on a slightly nicer, also undyed fabric garment over the work clothes. They can take it off when they go back to work. And the only distinctions between the clothing is to show men apart from women, and then also to show the married and the unmarried. But there's no freedom in the choice of what you wear. It's just functional. I'm reminded of that Yeezy drop where he had a crowd of models all wearing those those plain grayish outfits. They just stood there for hours, not moving. I'm reminded of cults again, especially Heaven's Gate and those those Nikes, which I also owned a pair of. It also occurs to me, listening to your, your dis- description of what they do, even when they go to leisure occasions, just how bad these leisure occasions must have smelled. <laughs> but I think in this book, I think the part about the jewels is definitely my favorite part, but... In Utopia, they hold gold and jewels in contempt because they are useless for actually sustaining a living and valuable only because they are rare. So to educate their people from youth to despise these things, they give their slaves chains made of solid gold and they give the children diamonds as a kind of kid's toy, kind of like a dummy, so that they deem it a childish thing to have and grow out of it when they become older. And if that weren't enough, they shit on gold. Quote, They eat and drink out of vessels of earth or glass, wait for it, which make an agreeable appearance, though formed of brittle materials, while they make their chamber pots and closed stools of gold and silver. End quote. Yeah, I think that's a real flex. I think my favorite passage is this, when the Utopians are visited by some foreign ambassadors decked out in jewels from head to toe. And here's the passage. You might have seen the children who were grown big enough to despise their playthings, the gold, the diamonds, and who had thrown away their jewels, call to their mothers, push them gently and cry out, see that great fool that wears pearls and gems as if he were yet a child, while their mothers innocently replied, hold your peace. This, I believe, is one of the ambassador's fools. I think some of the most interesting descriptions of Utopia for me were the features that have actually been attempted in real-life Utopian societies, or even cultish communities, really. But in Utopia, there's there's no private property, which I think has obvious connections to you know communist societies that have been attempted for the past 100 years. But in the book, it's it's to the point where there's no stockpiling of any food at home. Everyone eats meals communally in these great feeding houses. And this was actually a big feature of mid-century Maoist China. You know, everyone goes to the to the big food hall and they all eat there. But there's also that bit where he divides up the Utopians' day. He says they get six hours for work, eight hours for sleep, and the rest of their time is for, for meals and leisure, you know, reading or you know pursuing some hobby and i think this has obvious parallels with that marxist slogan eight hours work eight hours rest eight hours sleep it makes me wonder though do they have a lot of sundials do they have one giant clock that they all look up at i wanted more details on that one thing that i did like about this book was i think as we continue to read utopia novels and dystopia novels we can remember some things 
from this book, whether or not they're actually inspirational to the later authors, they at least seem ideas fundamental enough to a society that they are picked up again and explored and made a main point or at least a predominant point to to give an arc. One thing that I could think of is H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. There are the people who live above ground called the Eloi, and they're so peaceable and innocent. They they don't think abstractly. They've never had to. Well, really, actually, the Eloi's don't think at all. But in Utopia, they also don't think abstractly. So here's a quote. They are so far from minding chimeras and fantastical images made in the mind that none of them could comprehend what we meant when we talked to them of a man in the abstract, which Hithliday calls empty notions. In Moore's Utopia, the characters, they've still got their own technology. They're compared to as equivalent to the ancient Greeks in their logic, but they've done this on their own. They've, they've reached these achievements in their own utopian way, and that's with, without abstraction. Here's another quote. They knew astronomy and were perfectly acquainted with the motions of the heavenly bodies and have many instruments, well contrived and divided, by which they very accurately compute the course and positions of the sun, moon, and stars. End quote. Yeah, Heisleday also notes that while they have all the wisdom of these ancient philosophers, they have completely bypassed the new logicians with their subtle inventions, for they have devised not the rules of restrictions, amplifications, and suppositions, which here our children in every place do learn. And when he says this, this is a reference to school philosophy, or what we call scholasticism, which both Moore and Heitheladay hold in contempt for its very abstract nature and with the accusation that it doesn't engage with reality. And I think it's funny that in the first book of Utopia, Moore actually accuses Heitheladay of using school philosophy by speaking in two abstract terms, and Moore suggests that he used rather an, another kind of philosophy, which is more practical or prudent, and that takes account of a particular political circumstance that the philosopher has to deal with. And it's almost like in the second book here, Heitheladay is trying to get back at this accusation and say, listen, I know as well as anyone that school philosophy is dumb. Right? That's how it feels to this me. This bit about the, the scientific achievements, the utopians, I actually thought was really, really interesting. He gives us this anecdote about Romans and Egyptians crashing on their shores, and the Utopians eagerly learn all the good things that they could from them, but apparently they they learn none of the bad aspects of, of each of those individual cultures. So the Utopians are not only studious, but they're also apparently very discerning. And not only that, but the, if the, it says, if the Utopians are aware that the outside world has some form of knowledge but these visitors couldn't explain how to achieve it or discover it, the utopians would immediately set off and work diligently until they had found their own way to that discovery. Yeah, I love this element too, and I think we might see more of this one, especially a, well, two civilizations, if one is slightly more advanced, the other can look on and either out of necessity or out of something else, they, they reproduce those technologies in their own way. Yeah, and we should think about this as we read our future books. How did each individual society get there? Whether it's utopian or in the future dystopian, what brought them step by step to this path? I think I think 
we'll see authors go out of the way to explain this and make a point of it. Yeah, that will be really interesting was what was the cost to wind up here? Is it something horrible? When is that revealed in the book? Are they going to improve throughout the book? I think we'll, that will be a really interesting thing to think about is the paths of these societies. And it seems like the utopian path in, in this book is curiosity. But we see the same dynamic of one civilization observing an advanced civilization's technology and then trying to copy it. We see that in many science fiction disaster or space invader novels, especially in Sushin Lu's three-body problem. In that book, instead of playing curiosity, it's war and the threat of imminent destruction that pushes one civilization to learn from another. So a little different. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Because in this book, we don't really get a reason for why the utopians are so curious. They just are, and it's just presented as a fact. That's why they're good. They're very good. They're even too good. There's an emphasis on self-sacrifice, I think, in Utopia. Here's a quote. And from thence they infer that if a man ought to advance the welfare and comfort of the rest of mankind, there being no virtue more proper and peculiar to our nature than to ease the miseries of other, to free from trouble and anxiety and furnishing them with the comforts of life in which pleasure consists. The nature much more vigorously leads them to do all this for himself. Yeah, there is that great emphasis of the group over the individual. I do think that there are many elements of this original utopia that, you know, reading today and being familiar with the genre of dystopian novels, I see a lot of parallels with these kind of negative future visions. I suppose the easiest thing to point to would be their system of slavery. But it's not just the act of slavery for the utopians. It's also that they built this entire morality that justifies the slavery and also seems to rely upon it in order to keep the society functioning. So to give an example, they have a they have this, I guess I would call it enlightened vegetarian attitude. They think that killing animals is totally immoral. However, they still really love to eat meat. So what are you going to do? Ah, well, we'll have our slaves be the butchers. They'll do this totally immoral thing. They also think that war is totally undignified. But as a society, they, they have to defend themselves. And every now and then it says they got to they gotta send some armies overseas and kick some ass. So what do they do? They hire mercenaries to fight wars for them. So in a sense, they've, they've built this ethical system where they need to get their hands dirty, but they don't want to do it themselves. I'm not convinced that this is actually morally superior. I think of it as being the difference between murdering someone with your own hands or paying a hitman to murder someone for you. At the end of the day, it's the same act. And what they've done instead is to create this morally impure underclass of people to do all their dirty work for them. Doing dirty work is a big theme in books like Hunger Games or in the comic book Snowpiercer, where society is so divided that one piece of society can live in leisure, can live in extreme comfort, and the rest, they're far enough away, they provide all the resources, they do all 
the war. They provide need for any sort of bloodlust that the leisure class has. And if they don't, society will break down. So it's also justified, but in a kind of different way. But I think we'll see this more. Yeah, I'm interested to see how future books explore it. And I think that one of the interesting ways that a lot of these contemporary utopian or dystopian novels talk about this sort of thing is by talking about human nature. And Thomas More's Utopia also has an image of what human nature is. And I think it's interesting that when it talks about human nature, it's it's Raphael talking about how, oh, the utopians understand that it's human nature to want to wear fine clothes or have premarital sex, but they understand that these things are not the good. These things aren't the best things that people can do as a society. So what do they do? They simply outlaw these things. Everyone wears the same drab clothes. And if you have sex before the age of 22, if you're a man or 18, if you're a woman, you are, what is it? I believe you cannot get married ever again in your life. So I think I think that there's this aspect that we need to recognize utopia for what it is. It's not it's not this like hippie free love free for all or this kind of like Anne Rand place of unrestrained, you know, liberty and capitalism. It's really just one narrow interpretation of the good being imposed by force upon this island population. Yeah, it is so extreme. And to me, the extremity of it actually raises the question of how we're actually supposed to take this notion of utopia. Are we intended to take it in wholesale all at once as kind of like a blueprint for the state and this is how things should be to the letter, like we're drawing up a sort of draft of laws? Or should we take it more piecemeal and should we see it as kind of giving form to certain values and ideals that maybe this is the extreme embodiment of these ideals, but we can in a more moderate way integrate these ideas, taking pieces here and there. And I kind of think these two attitudes are both present in this text, in the characters of Heithleday and Moore. So at the end of the at the end of his speech, Heithleday says this. He says, quote, This form and fashion of a wheel public, which is like the Commonwealth of the Public Welfare, which I would gladly wish unto all nations. I am glad that it hath chanced to the utopians which have followed these institutions of life, whereby they have laid such foundations of their commonwealth as shall continue and last, not only wealthily, but also as far as man's wit may judge and conjecture, endure forever. So here it's quite clear that Heifleday is saying this is exactly how we should set up society. This is exactly how the utopians are, and this is exactly what society should be like. That's what he sees the utopia as functioning as. But the character, Moore, his final statement is quite to the contrary and embodies the other idea. He says, I cannot agree and consent to all things that be said, being else without doubt a man singularly well learned and also in all worldly matters exactly and profoundly experienced, as Heifleday is, so I must needs confess and grant that many things be in the utopian wheel public, which in our cities I may rather wish for than hope. So it seems like he's saying, I agree with some things you're saying, not sure about other things. And while you might even hope for something like this, it's, or you might wish for something like this, you can't actually hope for it to come to being in reality. So all you can really do is take these ideas 
and maybe see them as kind of like a signpost of, oh, we maybe could head a little bit more in this direction. But I do think that this is a question, you know, how we should take utopia that we will inevitably have to bring up again when we approach future utopias. Yeah, I agree with that. And I appreciate that our author character here is giving us this really ambiguous commitment to it. Because I think that when we look at future utopian books, we need to we need to pay attention to whether this is a polemic or a manifesto, or whether it is a challenge for the individual reader to weigh the evidence and judge it and think for themselves. Because I think by having Thomas More, the character, be so ambivalent towards the whole project at the very end, it invites the reader to turn their brains on. Turn their brains on? Not for me. Give me the polemic. Give me the manifesto. <laughs> give me some undyed clothing. What's our next utopia? Who's going to dress me? Tell me some. So let's do Red Star next, which is Alexander Bogdanov's 1908 science fiction novel about a communist society on Mars. Blast off. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob. Talk to you later, John and Zach.